regarding sexual morality. Paul hears about this and believes it is critical to address it. In a sense, what he's doing is he's giving his readers and you and me 2020 lenses through which we look and see the benefit, the blessing, and the glory of God's good design for sexual expression. Now you can imagine some of the murmuring that might have taken place in the local coffee shops and bars as some of the believers were hearing about this. Just a second. Everybody's doing it. These are natural impulses. God just wants me to be happy. Your biblical norms, Paul, feel oppressive. Plus, only I can decide what to do with my body. Any of these things sound familiar? So, anticipating these misunderstandings, Paul supplies us with good reasons to embrace God's standards, God's views on sexual practice. Here they are, number one. You thrive abiding by them. Verse one. Paul reminds them, finally, brothers and sisters, we urge and ask you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. What is Paul reminding them? He's reminding them that when he preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the triumph of Jesus Christ over the law, sin, penalty, death. He also preached ethics. They go hand in hand. That when Christ claims you as his own and redeems you, he changes you. Not only in Jesus Christ are you freed from the penalty of sin, you are delivered from the penalty of sin, you are also, by the Holy Spirit, delivered from the destructive power of sin by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So God doesn't just save you from destruction. He saves you for blessedness. He taught the Thessalonians that. Beloved, who most wants your happiness? God, more so than you do. He made you. He loves you. He knows what's good for you, and he doesn't hide it. Neither did Paul. That's why we see him say, we taught you, verse 1, how to walk and to please God. And in doing that, notice in verse 2, they were instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is taking the ethics of the Lord Jesus Christ who embodied them perfectly and taught them clearly, and he passes them on to you, me, and the Thessalonians. Here's his summary of that in verse 3. Look at verse 3. His summary of that is this. For this is the will of God. This is what God wants you to do. This is how he wants you to please him. This is, this is ultimate, true, infallible morality. 
your sanctification. Now that's a fancy theological word that comes from the Greek word hagias, which means to set apart or to be holy. What's God's will for you? To be holy. Sanctification is God in love putting his hand on you, setting you apart for himself as his precious treasure in order to do what? Make you look like his son, the most beautiful person in the world. So when you wake up tomorrow morning and you wonder, is what's God's will for me at work? What's, should I buy that car? Should I look into this new apartment? Should I date this person? Should I go to the gym? Those are all important things, but the clear will of God for you is to become like Jesus. And who, what, what could be better? Who can improve on the glory of God's character? So pleasing God obviously glorifies him and nothing satisfies your soul more than that. Now I know we don't believe that ultimately. We strive to. We don't practice it perfectly. But let me, let me dive deeper into this, and I'm going to get to sexual immorality this way. Walking in God's will means, among other things, experiencing God's pleasures as he has designed them. That's an aspect of God's will. Experiencing human pleasure according to God's design. So who created taste buds? The pleasure of seeing something beautiful, hearing something lovely, smelling the flowers in your garden in the summertime. Every single nerve ending in the human body is put in its place by a good creator. All these pleasures come from God. I'm thinking of, you can see in the outline, Psalm 104, 28. When you open your hand, we are filled with good things. You just sang, praise God from whom all blessings flow, including pleasure of every kind. I love the way Paul, uh, David puts it in Psalm 145, 16. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is committed to human beings experiencing pleasure. Now look, when your heart really believes that, I mean really believes that, your soul is in the grip of the reality that God is committed to you experiencing pleasure on his terms, what will your heart be filled with? Wonder, awe, gratitude, humility, as well as a resolve to use those pleasures on his terms rather than your own terms, including physical intimacy. Sexual pleasure is a gift given by God to his creatures. He invented it. He loves it. It's his design, and it's given for a context to be used by a man and a woman in a marriage commitment 
In no other way is it to be used. This is why he warns against, when he uses the word sexual immorality, that translates the Greek word porneia. And clear studies of the way that word is used is that is sexual intimacy in any context apart from a man and a woman in a committed marriage. Anything else is porneia. It's missing the mark of God's good design. Just like some of you have watches and it says, you know, this is waterproof down to 15 feet. Not your cell phone. Put your cell phone in two feet of water, you're off to T-Mobile to get a new one. Why? Your cell phone was not designed to be submerged in water. The gift of physical intimacy was designed for one context, a man and a woman in marriage. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus stands on this verse when he teaches about uh, divorce. Now some of you may be thinking, I'm not sure I believe in God but I believe in sex. That's understandable. There's something about it that attracts you. But here's what I'd like you to consider if that's the way you think. Every pleasure God gives you is for your good, but it's not necessarily an end in itself. I'm going to repeat that. The pleasure God gives us in our created bodies are not ends in themselves. God wants you to know that the intimacy you crave physically with another person is a taste of the ultimate intimacy of the pleasure of God's presence. So sex is a signpost. This way to paradise. Don't stop there. Don't be satisfied ultimately with just that. You'll miss the greater glory that it points to which is the pleasure of the presence of God. This is how David puts it in Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forever. So all human pleasures, whether you're satisfied with drink or food or friendship, whatever it is, they are, none of them ends in themselves, but pointers to the greater pleasure of the presence of God. No wonder David says in the Psalms, God is my exceeding joy. And Solomon, who had all the pleasures in the world on steroids, said nothing, Proverbs 3 and 8, nothing I desire compares with you. That's an invitation to those of you who may not believe in God, but you believe in physical intimacy and expression. Well, could there be a greater pleasure? Beloved, there is. Third reason. Sorry, I skipped a page. Second reason. <laughs> Very important. You hurt yourself not abiding by them. Again, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. So if God's will is good for you, then anything less is bad for you. 
It's bad for you. It hurts you. Sexual immorality, porneia, any sexual expression apart from a man and a woman in marriage. Do you see Paul's tacit assumption here? Sex isn't merely discovered, it's created. And when you think about the way God has put human bodies together, does that look like the chance co-location of atoms in an impersonal universe? Or does it look like the design of a good creator? I'd bet my life on the latter. So would you. So, if you didn't invent this gift, would you be wise to begin to use it according to the inventor's manual versus your own impulses? Of course you'd be wise. Somebody gives you some high-tech gadget that's going to do amazing things for you. You would be prudent and careful and diligent to find out how it works, lest you ruin it. So, beloved, the biblical worldview supplies a view of a created order that when you move in concert with God's created order, it's good. When you don't, it's self-destruction. And that's one of the clearest places that is stated is Proverbs 6, 27 to 35. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can he? No, of course not. Can walk, one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Answer, no, of course not. So obvious. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. So I just want you to think of sexual expression outside of marriage between a man and a woman as taking fire out of the fireplace. It's a good place for it, right? You can get heat, you can cook, you can enjoy the ambience. It's taking fire out of the fireplace and putting it in the middle of your living room, living room floor. It's going to destroy. God will not be mocked. You can't misuse his gifts without consequences. Third good reason God gives you to fully embrace his biblical ethics for sexuality. You contradict your profession of faith. Paul says in verse 5, control your, verse 4, control your own body. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. See what he contrasts? He contrasts not knowing God with knowing God. When you don't know God, what are you ruled by? According to the verse, you're ruled by your lusts. When you know God, there's a power, a new desire, a new ambition, not to be tyrannized by your lusts. So if you don't know God, you will be ruled by whatever you happen to desire at any specific moment. And do you see what this tells you? Your identity is not determined by what you desire. Your identity is determined by the image of God. We desire all kinds of things that in the end we never want to be our identity. Human beings aren't self-determining. They were created by a great designer to thrive bearing his image. 
Your identity is not determined by what you desire. It's determined by the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So how do you know a life-giving desire from a destructive desire, ultimately? That desire reflects the image of God. That desire is according to God's standards of holiness and righteousness. We could say more about that. Fourth reason to embrace God's view of biblical ethics. You heard another believer. He says in verse 6, no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So what stands behind this idea that there's potential to hurt your fellow man, not least your brother or sister in the church family, by violating God's commands. What stands behind it is that God's commands safeguard human flourishing. It keeps you from taking what isn't yours. So the sixth commandment says, don't take another person's life. The seventh commandment, don't steal another person's spouse. The eighth commandment, don't steal another person's possessions. The ninth commandment, don't steal another person's good name. God wants to safeguard human flourishing. His commandments are good. They safeguard it. They protect it. Your neighbor's sexuality belongs to their spouse, not you. Don't steal it. That's a good thing for us to know. Fifth reason, you face the Lord's displeasure. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, so he anticipates some, some internal churning against this. You know, these, this is oppressive. This, I, I don't want to live this way. He anticipates this. Paul says, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Paul's saying, I'm just telling you what God says. Don't take my word. I'm telling you what God says. You know, either God has spoken on this subject or it's just chaos. It's one or the other. And, and he says, uh, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, in the Greek, this word disregard is very strong. It means to despise, to spurn, to refuse. And do you feel Paul's logic? Paul's logic is, if sanctification is God making you like himself, and there's no greater privilege or glory, then to reject that call is to reject God himself. That's what he's saying. What should God do when people reject him? He should avenge it as an act of justice. Verse 6. The Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What does it look like for God to avenge this sexual misconduct? I'm not sure. But isn't the warning enough? <laughs> isn't that enough of a warning? And look, Jesus Christ was known as a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. That means there was something about his heart that drew sexually promiscuous people. 
They found in him a Savior who would forgive them and deliver them from the guilt, the shame, and the bondage. So, beloved, there's hope for everyone in this room and everyone in this world to flee and to be forgiven any and all sexual immorality, and that's in Jesus. Finally, what's Paul doing? He's giving us a corrective lens through which we peer through the fog and misunderstandings of our culture, which you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, is profoundly mistaken. Profoundly. He's saying, don't take your cues from the culture. Same temptation to the Thessalonian men and women. Take them from God's word. Here's this corrective lens he's given you. Good reasons to embrace all that God says about sexuality. And that is, the last reason is, your body isn't your own. Verse 7. God has not called us for impurity. That, that's, that, that has sexual connotations to it. But in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So when Paul alludes to being alludes to being called to purity and being given the Holy Spirit, what's the ultimate talking about? That when you have faith in Christ and you're saved, you're his possession. He saves you to possess you, to make you his own. And I'm well aware that many people in our culture think only I can decide what I do with my body. So I want to respond to that with three biblical assertions which prove to be infinitely better for human flourishing than that sentiment, only I can do what I decide, only I can decide what I do with my body. Let me refute that with three biblical assertions. Number one, by virtue of creation, your body belongs to God. So how many in the room, or for that matter, how many in human history had anything to do with inventing the human body? Any hands go up? Does any of you have anything to do with the structure, the design, the makeup of the human body? Nobody, nobody. Secondly, how many of you or how many people in the history of the world had anything to do with willing your human existence? How many of you decided to exist? Anybody? Nobody. God designed your body and God willed your physical existence and that means you belong to him. Here's what he says in Isaiah 43.6. Is this, is this verse in your outline in the bulletin? Good. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There's no human being that exists that God didn't will their existence and God didn't shape their creation. David said it in Psalm 139, breathtaking, you may, may be familiar with it, the breathtaking sense of God forming in the womb. Right? You form my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Beloved, God owns what he makes, and he loves what he owns. By virtue of creation, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It's the best reason to be a good steward of everything about your body. Secondly, 
if you happen to be married. Your body belongs to your spouse. Uh, that doesn't apply to all of you because you're not married. But for those who are married, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband shall give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So the physical union in marriage is a voluntary expression of belonging to the other. So this gift to be exercised in the privacy behind closed doors is spouse is simply saying, I'm giving you what's yours. I'm giving you what's yours. Doesn't that safeguard against abuse? Absolutely. And beloved, it's, it's only in marriage where there is a commitment to fidelity and oneness and purpose that this is safeguarded. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says when you have an intimate reunion with a prostitute, you've created a monstrosity because you have physical oneness without the oneness of the marriage commitment. Paul says that that's a monstrosity. And last point. Your body in salvation belongs to Jesus. So Christ went to the cross for you that he would give you as a gift by grace through his mercy. He wants to give you, lavish upon you, gift you everything he accomplished. He wants you clothed in his perfect righteousness. He wants your soul cleansed of all defilement of sin through his shed blood. Christ Jesus offered a sinless body in the place of the judgment we deserve. So his cross is his pledge to save you from yourself for himself. See, on the cross, he said, Father, avenge their sins in my body. He wanted to bear the vengeance in his body, a body that for 33 years never sinned and lived in absolute perfect holiness, completely flawlessly. Why? He wants to own you because it's best for you. He wants to dwell in your body, even as dirty as you have made it from sexual sin. He wants that. And that's why sexual purity is a sanctification issue. He's making you like him, pure, holy, righteous, faithful to the law. So if you belong to Christ, you're not your own person. You were bought with a price. He cherishes you more than you cherish yourself. So do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying the whole heart of biblical sexual ethics is be who you are. You're one with the body of Christ. Be that. Let your body reflect your status. You've been joined to Jesus Christ in holiness. 1 Corinthians 6.20 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So everything we do in our bodies is profoundly important because that body is somehow, mysteriously, supernaturally joined to Jesus Christ. And it is to reflect that. So this is Jesus' promise. I will forgive your body. I will preserve your body. I will protect your body. And I will raise your body up on the last day. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for this liberating truth, this obvious principle that in creation our bodies belong to God. In marriage, our bodies belong to our spouse. In salvation, our bodies belong to Jesus. As we look to you for cleansing, for forgiveness, for renewal from sexual sin, we breathe in the Spirit's assurance that your love for us, your commitment to our eternal welfare, always outruns our failures. Thank you for grace upon grace. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Amen. Please stand with us and sing. my redeemer there is no more forever now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this I hold my hope is only for my life is only bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can.